Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Charles Duhigg. I'm a writer for the New Yorker magazine and the author of The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. And I'm really, really excited to be here and to welcome you here today because we're being joined by one of my favorite researchers and one of my favorite people, the economist Katie Milkman, who's going to be discussing her new book, How to Change the Science, the science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Um, the reason why I, like, I was looking forward to this book so much is because Katie has spent her entire career studying behavioral change and to understand how to spur positive habits and, and how people actually manifest new behaviors in their lives. Uh, you might be familiar with her podcast, Choiceology, which focuses on the lessons of behavioral economics and how irrational decision-making can affect our future. And as the James G. Dinan professor at the Wharton School of, of the University of Pennsylvania, um, there's no one better to ask about making good decisions about how to become successful. The, the, the thing about how to change, and I actually have a copy of it here, I'm sure you're going to see this a number of times, is that... Um, it inspires us to create these new habits and, and to break these unhealthy cycles in our lives. So from things like eating badly to whether we exercise or not, or to procrastination, to finding purpose and success in our lives. Oftentimes, I think when I'm talking to people and in my own life, I found that these feel like insurmountable goals sometimes, right? That, that change feels sometimes impossibly hard. But through case studies and through personal narratives, and most importantly, by discussing her research and other people's research, Katie encourages people to achieve more, to understand how to change themselves and how change happens. Um, and so we're going to be talking about that a lot today. We, we're going to be discussing actually a lot of topics in the next hour. And, and I, I want you to ask your questions too. And so if you're watching with us, I would totally encourage you to please put your questions in the text chat box on YouTube, and we will definitely be getting to them later in the program. And so let me start by saying, um, and, and in fact, throughout the program, so ask a question anytime. And let me start by saying, hi, Katie. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for hosting. I'm really excited to be doing this. No, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this for like a long time. Um, okay, so, so let me take a big step back and let me ask you this. At some point, you decided to start to start thinking about how people change. And, and what's fascinating to me is that you came at this as an economist. Take me back. Like, like how did you get to this place where thinking about change and, and, and the behavior of change from an economics viewpoint, how did that happen to you? Yeah, well, my path has been very winding. Um, and actually, I was I was an engineer first. I'm not sure an economist would actually recognize me as an economist. <laughs> uh, I'm some in-between creature. Uh, I got my PhD in engineering, and it was there, actually, that I stumbled upon the field of behavioral economics and learned about this really interesting new development where economists were starting to recognize people have limitations, that people are not perfectly rational, that their foresight is not great, that they're, they're impulsive, that they overweight losses and um, underweight some of the things that are so important to our long-term outcomes. So I was immediately captivated because I sort of saw myself in these models and I thought, okay, I don't, maybe I don't want to be an engineer. Maybe this is what I want to study. This is so interesting. Uh, but when I started doing research in this area, it really started as me search. Like, oh, I can't figure out how to be more productive at the end of the day. I can't figure out how to get myself to the gym. And I thought, you know, maybe some of these problems could be solved with tinkering and with an understanding of behavioral science. And it wasn't really until I got to Wharton as an assistant professor, having done a few projects that were, you know, various ways related to interesting data sets that I figured out I wanted to study change. And the moment, it was like one of those light bulb moments, we all have them in our careers, I guess, where I was sitting in a not super fascinating talk over at the medical school about behavior change uh, in the medical realm. And someone put a slide up that I had never seen before with this graph. And it was a pie chart. And the pie chart showed the per percentage of premature deaths that were caused by different things. And what it showed is that 40% of premature deaths in the U.S. are the result of behaviors that we could change. So decisions we make about what we eat, what we drink, whether or not we exercise, uh, whether we smoke, whether or not we practice you know, safe behaviors in vehicles. 
all of those things add up far more than I'd ever appreciated. I would have guessed an order of magnitude smaller wedge was due to behavior. And realizing that, realizing that these things that I had sort of started studying casually because I was interested in what were my problems could accumulate and matter so much that changed the course of my career. I felt like, okay, I, I have to study this. And if it accumulates in that way in health, just think of how it must accumulate when we look at educational outcomes or financial outcomes. And I am starting to understand some of the tools we can use to change this. So that's really how I got to a laser focus on behavior change. And let me ask, you know, so when I was writing um, The Power of Habit, which which I only realized kind of once I was halfway through, it was really very similarly, like it's, it's about the science of change, right? Like the, the, people are endlessly fascinated by trying to understand how do I change for the better? One of the things that drove me writing The Power of Habit was that I basically didn't understand why it was so hard for me to lose weight. Like, you know, I'm I was a reporter at the New York Times at that point. I had gotten all these fancy degrees. Like I could clearly make myself do hard things. And yet it, we had just had a baby. Like, like not eating the little chicken nuggets of my child was like torture for me. And so I basically decided to write a book to try and figure out how to, how to start exercising and lose weight. So let me ask, I mean, when you, you, you said that this was kind of like you were, you were, you were doing meology at first, what, like you're a very accomplished person. What what were the things that you have struggled to change with, or that or that you wanted answers to? Well, first of all, I think everybody should give themselves a pass. And by the way, I love that power of habit. I should note it's one of my favorite <laughs> books. It's fabulous, and I reference it frequently in in um, my book. Um, it's totally normal to be great at self-control in some parts of your life and not in others. And I think that's actually really fascinating too. My friend and collaborator, Angela Duckworth, told me the correlation within person in the ability to exert self-control and sort of, you know, achieve your goals in different walks of life from eating to career is about the same as between people. So it's not unusual. <laughs> uh, and I also have lots of challenges and always have, even though I've stacked up degrees and, and things look nice on paper, I think that's the, the human condition. And I frankly think the human condition and the human condition of people who achieve more is just figuring out how do you win those battles, right? What are the strategies? And that's really what the book is about. But I would say that the first challenge I struggled with that got me going on this me search path was when I was a graduate student, I would come home at the end of a long day and all I wanted to do was curl up on the couch and binge watch TV or read lowbrow fiction because that's my one of my guilty pleasures. I had no interest in doing my problem sets. I had no interest in going to the gym, which I also knew was critical to my personal happiness. I'm a lifelong athlete and I do not do well when I haven't had my exercise, but I couldn't get myself to do either of those things. All I wanted was entertainment. And so I came up with this strategy that ended I've ended up studying that I call temptation bundling, which lots of other people do things that are quite similar to this naturally. I said, okay, I have a rule. I'm only going to let myself indulge in these guilty pleasures while I'm exercising. So I started, for me, I couldn't do the TV thing while it was, it was too much sensory input. So I started listening to lowbrow audio novels, like the Hunger Games and the Twilight books while I was at the gym, James Patterson. And I would find myself coming home at the end of a long day of classes, craving my trips to the gym, so excited to get there, find out what happens in my latest novel. I would enjoy the workout time just flew by while I was listening to the story unfold. And then I'd get home and I was energized and ready to get my work done and my grades improved and my happiness improved. And I didn't waste time because I'd gotten my, my entertainment done at the gym. And it was just this magic. And I realized, okay, one, I can study this. And I've since studied and shown I'm not the only one who can benefit from this kind of bundling a temptation with something that feels a bit like a chore in order to make that more of a pleasure that you actually look forward to and, and accomplish. Um, but also, you know, there, there have to be more tricks like this, there have to be more solutions. And that's really where um, that's where I started. There's lots of other hacks that I, I use now, but that was my first one that got me going. And I want to ask about these hacks and get into them, but but let me take a, a sort of big step backward, the 30,000 foot perspective. Is there like a, a mental model for change? Like when we think about change in people's lives, like what's the, the what's the big idea that we should know uh, that helps us change and helps us understand why other people struggle with it? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think 
I, for a while, was looking for the one thing, right? Like the one magic solution that would get it, you know, all figured out. And what I actually realized was that I think that was the problem, that trying to look for the silver bullet, the single way that we can change is exactly what turns us, you know, into a mess. And it it's the mistake that organizations make when they're trying to figure out, oh, oh, this worked in this one setting, let's use it here too. Um, what I've found is that it depends. And but it, it isn't just it depends, there's a better answer than that. There, there are a set of things, uh, sort of a list, if you will, that seem to be common obstacles to change. And depending on which one it is in your way, whether it's, for instance, what I was struggling with, with exercise, which is it felt like a chore. I wasn't looking forward to it. And I couldn't drag myself to do something that was going to be not instantly gratifying. So temptation won out. So that's one barrier. But it can also be, you know, it, you're forgetting or you're forgetful, or it's not the path of least resistance, or you don't have the self-confidence you need to actually achieve your goals. And once we recognize that there's a litany of different challenges and start to try to diagnose what, what is the obstacle in this particular situation, then science actually has a lot of value to add because we know a lot about how to create change. It's just that things won't work all the time because if you apply the wrong solution, you, you don't get a good outcome. It's sort of like, you know, we get this in medicine, right? We get in medicine, if somebody goes to the doctor and they say, I have a headache, you want to figure out, okay, let's diagnose it. Do you have, you know, do you have a brain tumor or do you, are you not getting enough sleep? And the solution is really different depending on those things. But with change, I think too often we've tried to apply this one size fits all balm. And instead we need to be more uh, focused on diagnosing and, and tailoring our strategies to the problem. That's really interesting. And that makes a ton of sense. I, I guess, because what I hear you saying, and tell me if I'm getting this right, is that is that there is this instinct to try and simplify things, right? We think about we think about starting to exercise and losing weight and and not procrastinating. We say, well, I I just I want to change it. Like they all seem like change, so they seem like they should be the same thing. But actually, like when we are able to break it down and specify, actually the obstacle for exercise is different than than the obstacle that's causing me to procrastinate. That gives me a tool for actually applying the right solution to that problem rather than just beating up on myself because I feel like if I just use willpower, I'll be able to, to push through it. Beautifully said. You should have written this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I want to, we, we got some questions coming in, which is great. And we're about to get to them. Um, and before I do, there's one thing I wanted to ask about, which is that you open with this great story about Andre Agassi. Can you, can you tell me a little, tell, tell me that story? Cause I, I, I loved it as like a way to think about this topic. I, and I love the opening story. Thank you for giving me the chance to tell it. It's, I, I will say that I actually wrote the introduction to the book last, which I've, I've learned is not that abnormal. I'm curious if you have ever done that with any of your books. It oh, I do that with all me. my books. That's do all you? I do is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the introduction better. I find, like, I don't know enough until I'm done with the book to write the introduction. Oh, I'm learning. It was, it was a circuitous road. I had a bad introduction. And then this introduction. I love the introduction. It's my favorite part of the book. I wrote it last. It's the story of Andre Agassi. And I'll say, you know, personally, one of the reasons I love the introduction is also I was a serious tennis player growing up and a serious Andre Agassi fan and realizing I could open with a story that I found so exciting was just, you know, it's like magic. Um, so the story that I tell at the beginning is a story that really comes from uh, Andre Agassi's amazing autobiography open, which I also highly recommend. I should, I'm like, I, it's probably right here and I could hold that book up if I, I have a bookshelf right above me. Um, the story is of a, a moment when his career really turned around In it was in 1994, he had had a really rough period. His ranking had fallen. He was about 32nd in the world. If I'm remembering correctly, his coach had just left him. And this is a guy who everybody thought was going to be the best player. He was the young phenom. All the people he grew up with, Pete Sampras, uh, Jim Courier, Michael Chang, were outperforming him. And everyone had expected him to be the star because he had so much raw talent. So things were really not looking good. And he had this dinner. He had it with uh, another player, Brad Gilbert, who had just written a best-selling book called Winning Ugly. And Brad Gilbert, it was really, it was an interview to see if Brad Gilbert would co consider coming on and becoming Agassiz's coach. And 
the the dinner started out with just a, a discussion, a diagnosis. Like, you know, what do you think? What do you think about Agassiz's game? There was a manager there who was asking these questions. And Brad Gilbert said, look, if I had the raw talent you have, I would be number one in the world. And the reason that you're not winning more matches is you are you are not being strategic. You're just going out there. You have all these weapons. You're such a great player. You're using your raw talent and you're not thinking about your opponent and figuring out how to let them lose instead of you trying to hit winner after winner. You're not setting up the odds in your favor. And that was really the brilliance of his book that had become a bestseller. Brad Gilbert's book, Winning Ugly, was all about figuring out what are the ways that you can change a match in your favor. It's, it's a book about strategy. And Agassi recognized the brilliance of what he was saying. He recognized himself in the description of him, uh, of the way he played. And he decided to take Gilbert on. He changed his methodology on the court completely. And he went from unseated in the U S open that year to winning the whole tournament. Um, he, rose to the number one rank in tennis and held on to that position for about 101 weeks over the course of his career. And of course, there were ups and downs and he had his own personal challenges, which is a separate behavior change issue. But it it was this moment when he recognized you have to understand your opponent in order to succeed. And that is really at the heart of behavior change too. It's it's a different opponent, right? It's not across the net from you. Uh, it's It's an inner opponent. But it's the same obstacle that if we just try to sort of take a the, our best our best swing, our best shot, whatever shiny, attractive approach we read about in in a new book um, that's a single approach, right? A silver bullet. It doesn't it doesn't get us where we may want to be. But if we can be strategic and figure out the opponent, then we can get much further. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I want to talk about the, those those different the tools in the arsenal to use for that. But before I do, I, I want to a question came in from Crystal, um, which I think is really timely. Which so Crystal Crystal asks, um, and thanks for sending that in, Crystal. And feel free anyone else to to type your questions into the the little chat box there on on YouTube. So Crystal asks, COVID made many of us develop new bad habits. Where is the line between be nice to yourself, you're just trying to survive, versus getting yourself to work out more or log off work at a decent hour, et cetera. And this is a hard one, right? Like, like if we are going to change, how do we decide what we should change and and when when we've changed enough? It's such a good question. And you know, one of one research finding that comes to mind that I, I think is really relevant to this question is there's work showing that if we um try to tackle too many challenges at once. And this is by led by Steven Spiller of UCLA. He's shown that if you make a, a detailed plan for a, a bunch of different goals, it actually backfires because when you're you're taking on too many things, you can't prioritize and you can't focus on the thing that's that's number one. So I do think it is really important when thinking about change, not just to, you know, be understanding of yourself, but actually to make sure you're not trying to do too much at once. That if there's a goal that's really important to you, that that is the thing you focus on right now and you set the other things aside until you get this under control. So I guess that would be my main piece of advice in this moment when we have formed lots of bad habits and there's a lot, if you want to change, you probably wouldn't be here tonight with us if you are this afternoon, if you're on the West Coast, uh, if you didn't feel the need to change, but try to pick one thing. What's your top priority? Start there and don't beat yourself up about about fixing all the bad habits. At, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and we, we just got another question from, from Curry about um, the fresh start effects. And so let, let me ask you about that, because I think that there's... Um, you know, one of the the big questions I get, and I'm sure you get all the time, and and just I think one of the things that all all of us wonder is, you know, like New Year's resolutions, do, do they work? Right when I'm when I'm starting a new job, when I'm going back into my office after I've been living out of you know my sweatpants for the last eighteen months, like like it feels like it's this opportunity to change everything, and yet we know that we've done that so many times, and and our New Year's resolutions hasn't haven't stuck, and so does it is it worth it, or are we just condemned to be the same person that we were before the pandemic? You've actually done research on this to try and figure out. So so tell me, like, what have you found? Well. I have bad news and I have good news. 
<laughs> okay, so the bad news is that it's absolutely true, and but you know this already, that most New Year's resolutions fail. And so uh, just deciding and resolving at a fresh start moment that you're going to make change, as you said, it's not enough. Um, but but the research we've done on fresh starts has a some a lot of silver linings. So uh, one thing is that there are fresh starts that motivate us to try again that come about even more frequently than I ever appreciated. When I first started studying this, I sort of knew, we all knew about New Year's resolutions, but I worked with a former doctoral student of mine, Heng Chen Dai, who's also at UCLA, lots of UCLA shout outs today, um, to figure out that actually that's just one of many moments in our lives that feel like a fresh start and give us a sense of a clean slate and a new beginning and this extra motivation to change. They can be as small as the start of a new week or more momentous, like the celebration of a birthday. Um, this moment that we're living through right now is obviously as we're getting vaccinated, we're starting to return to offices and see friends we haven't seen feels like a fresh start. They give us this sense of optimism. And that's important because it gets us started. The problem is it doesn't do a lot more than get us started. So that's, that's again, going back to this key point of we need more tools and we need to know the obstacles. One obstacle is getting motivated because if you don't get off the couch, if you don't set a goal, if you don't decide I want to change, you don't get anywhere. So I think they're great for getting us motivated, but then we need a bunch of other tools and tactics to get beyond, you know, two days of gym visits and then I quit. Um, one other thing I want to say about fresh starts, though, and I think this is an opportunity, is if you recognize them, if you understand they're coming and you also understand that they're fleeting, right? So New Year's resolution magic lasts a few days and then and then you get sick of it. Uh, what you need to do is not only set up systems that can help, but when you feel that motivation, trying to think about one-time decisions that can carry you really far can be incredibly valuable. So for example, things like making sure you're enrolled in a 401k or have had the cancer screenings you need to have, or that you've checked all the subscriptions that, that you're you know, being billed for automatically every month and are canceling them. Those are the kinds of things where just you know, one day when you're ready for a fresh start, some big action can carry you a long way. So, so I think fresh starts can be useful for that as well. That, that's really, so, so I actually hear you saying two things and, and, I think I'm getting this right. The first is that is that timing actually matters. That 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 instead of being cynical and saying, "Oh, New Year's resolutions, pshaw," that like I should actually look for for like the New Year's resolutions that happen all the time, not just on New Year's, but it, like if I'm if it's the last day of school for my kids, if I'm starting a new job, if if it, if it's the first day of summer, if it's leap leap day, leap year, whatever that day is, that that, <laughs> that, that like I should actually pay attention to these timing opportunities because I know that I can sort of like leverage them i can i can use them as a as a slingshot to to build up a little bit of momentum but then because my instinct is on new year's resolution is to talk about chronic things right i want to lose 20 pounds by the end of the year but you're saying no 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 no. actually look for the for the like the thing i can do in two days the decision i can make that that decision has an outsized impact which is to like go and like say like okay on on january 2nd is when i'm going to sign up for all my 401ks or i'm going to make the appointment for my you know the, all the procedures that i don't want to <laughs> see if i have cancer because they're terrible now that i'm 46 but 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 actually, like, like use that use that momentum of that special day for like a big thing, as opposed to like convincing myself that I'm going to diet every single week for the next fifty two weeks. Exactly, that's exactly right. And you know, it's not to say that we can't also use them to start the goals that are recurring, because right. we do know a lot, and you've written about it, and I've written about it, and you know, we do know a lot about habit and how to create those, and we can try to kickstart habits that will carry us forward. But there's this really big opportunity that I think we miss, exactly as you said, to try to do the thing that's a little effort on one day when you're feeling extra motivated that carries you a very long way. And and you've talked a little bit. So okay, so let's say let's say it's January second. I've I've you know done the the big things that I know are going to like filter into my through my life. But now I want to like start attacking these like small aspects of change, um, the the chronic change that I want to create. And you've talked a little bit about temptation bundling. That what I want to do is I want to take something I really want and pair it with something I don't like very much because because that, that'll make me do the thing I don't want in order to get that thing that I really like, which I love. Um, and in fact, I, I tell my kids to do this all the time. 
But what else do we know? Like, like if I, let's say I do want to change what I'm eating, right? And I want to, in order to, to lose weight, should I do it? Should I just come up with like a hard and fast rule? Should I, should I say like, okay, like every single day I have to stop eating at, you know, four o'clock and I can't have breakfast till 11. Like, what do we know about how to create the types of change that, that it's hard to maintain? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, weight loss and, and diet change are so hard and almost all of the obstacles to change actually come up on this one, right? From impulsivity and procrastination to habit to um, self-confidence, all of those things are actually part of them. Uh, and we ha- you know, have slip ups and, lo- and lose confidence. So that's a big part of the confidence challenge. So almost everything in the book is relevant to this one. So let me pick out uh, one topic that I think is probably not familiar to most people and can be a useful tool, but it's just one of many. And and the thing that comes to mind for me in thinking about this kind of goal is a commitment device. So commitment devices are tools that economists find very confusing because they essentially boil down to treating yourself like a policymaker would normally treat you. So you're used to having somebody else say, I'm going to fine you if you if you drive too fast. I'm going to you know, set these rules that if you break them, you're in trouble. But you're not used to doing that to yourself. And that is actually what a commitment device is. It's you recognize you're going to have some self-control problem in the future. And you say, I need to set up some rules and parameters and some fines that are going to prevent me from going off track when I have the impulse to do so, because they're going to make it so costly that I'll realize, shoot, I'd better not do this. So there's different kinds of commitments. One kind is cash commitment. That's the easiest, most portable kind. And that means literally you put money on the line that you will forfeit if you fail to achieve a certain goal. So for example, if you're thinking about a weight related goal or a a health related goal, it could be going to the gym, it could be pounds. Um, You can go to one of these websites. There's websites like uh, stick, S-T-I-C-K-K.com and Beeminder. And I believe there are some others as well where you can create a contract. You put money on the line that you will forfeit if you fail to achieve that goal, say going to the gym three times this week or losing one pound on your on your scale, which will report back to it because you have one of these smart scales. You can choose a referee or a device that will report to the site on whether you achieved your goal. And then you can actually choose who will get the stakes. And this is kind of fun. On Stick, you can choose a a charity you dislike that will receive the money. So they pick two charities on either side of a contentious issue, say the NRA and a gun control group. And you pick your poison so that it'll really sting and there's no silver lining if you fail. And there's research showing that these kinds of tools are very effective. They're not very popular because people are nervous about using them. That's a whole other topic. But when they're offered to people, they're very effective, even if a low take-up rate is uh, is what you see. So one of my favorite studies looks at a smoking cessation group, which is one of the hardest goals. I don't even touch on it much in this book because addiction is it's a whole other level. But this tool is so powerful, it can address that problem. So this random assignment trial involved people who wanted to quit smoking and they either got sort of a standard program or a standard program plus an opportunity to put money into an account that they would forfeit in six months if they failed a urine test for nicotine or codeine. And what they saw, the researchers found a 30% increase in successful quitting uh, of smoking due to this offering. Now, most people didn't put money in the account. Most people didn't take it up, but the ones who did got so much benefit from it that it increased success rates. Now, I should note, that sounds like a huge effect. It it was something like 10% of people successfully quit to 13%. So it's not like, you know, it's not like it's changing the world, but it is a really big relative effect. So why is that? Like, why? I mean, look, if I'm smoking, I know that I should give it up, right? Like, it's not like I'm my head, like there's any questions in my mind. Or, or if I'm, if I say I want to lose 20 pounds and then I'm sitting in front of a pie, I know that I should not eat the pie. Like, like there's not like a bunch of like uncertainties around this question, but like, why, like what happens psychologically when I've said, okay, if I eat that pie, I'm going to, you know, give $50 to, you know, the, the American Nazi party, this thing that I hate and despise. 
why, why is that? that right? Why is that, that wasn't more... a contentious issue? I'm <laughs> <laughs> not choosing okay. one of them. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd never give money to the American Nazi party. I definitely should not say that. It probably, but like, you know, something that I hate, right? The, yeah. No, the, no, that um, was perfect. That was perfect. So like, why, like, why does that provide additional motivation to me? Because I know that I should be doing this thing. And, and I know that it's ridiculous to even suggest that I would give money to this thing that I absolutely despise. I mean, this is what's so fascinating about present bias, which is the name that economists would use to describe this phenomenon where we we know what's good for us in the long run. We, we know this will increase our longevity, our happiness. It will make life better. And yet in the moment, we often make the wrong choice. And it's because we are we are overweighting instant gratification heavily and underweighting those things that are good for us in the long run. And what a commitment device does essentially is just tip the scales even further and bring some of that future pain forward because this money is going to come out of your pocket right now. And the, the challenge of eating the pie right now isn't so great, right? That you aren't going to see the pounds or the, the, difference in your longevity for many years, potentially, well, you may see the pounds for many years, but the difference in your longevity for many years, but you're going to get that delicious flavor and satisfaction in this instant. So we need more counterweights uh, that are going right. against it. And that's all it is. It's a really simple, you know, it's, it's just, it's just like policymakers changing the equation for you by putting a fine on a parking spot. It's, but you're doing it for yourself. It's really interesting because because you're exactly right. I think that when I'm sitting in front of that pie, what I'm basically doing is I'm basically like just pre like pretending I'm not thinking about it, right? Like <laughs> I'm going to eat this pie, but I'm sure I'm going to go run some other time and it's going to work it off. Whereas sure like will. if I eat that pie and I know that like, you know, those American Nazis who I despise are going to get like $30, $30 of my dollars in the mail, it, it makes it much more visceral and much more present. Okay, okay, and we have some great questions coming in that, that I want to ask you. Before I do, so when we think about changing ourselves and, and we're taking care, we're taking advantage of these commitment devices and temptation bundling, what do we know? You've done some research into habits, right? And like how how we should change those habits. I mean, one of the things that I that came across a lot when I was doing this research was this question of sort of two questions. The first is, does it really take 21 days to change a habit? But then the second one is, if I am changing that habit, should I, should I be looking for consistency? Should I basically like say like, I'm going to run two miles every single day at 630 in the morning? Like, how do we know about making this change something that's actually long lasting as opposed to something that, that even beyond the fresh start, I might be enthusiastic for a month, for three months. But what I really want is I want to be, I want this change to take hold for five years. Do we know anything about that? We do. We know a lot. Uh, although I, you know, I hope in 20 years, we'll know even more. First, I love that you brought up the 21 days to, to build a habit because Wendy Wood, who's a USC professor and the world's expert on habit, as far as I can tell, uh, I don't know if anyone who knows more about this topic than she does. She explained to me that that myth came from a study that she dug up that was um, of plastic surgery patients. And it was looking at how long it takes people to get used to an, a new look on their face. And somehow oh, wow. this myth has propagated that that's how long it takes to form a habit based on completely irrelevant data as far as she can tell. So I think that's a fascinating one. So no, it does not take 21 days to form a habit. And the best research I have seen suggests that it's very dependent on the setting. Um, in some work actually that I'm doing with uh, an economist, Colin Kammerer at Caltech is leading the team. We have looked at how long it takes people to form habits in the gym around going to the gym versus uh, hand sanitizing caregivers and hospitals and seen really different trends. So much faster to build those sort of motor habits that where you're, it's a high frequency behavior, like order of magnitude, you know, a couple of weeks. Whereas Exercise habits seem to take maybe many months, in fact, to really stabilize. So it's context dependent, almost certainly. And 21 days is not a magic number, though it is a very funny explanation for where it comes from. And is there a lot of variability from person to person? Like, are there some people who... who... Huge variability. And is that true of change in, in particular? Like, are there some people who who basically just are kind of change machines? Like, for whatever reason, 
they either know how to change or they have a genetic predisposition to be able to change more easily? Or or is it that everyone sort of has similar capacities, but some people have better tools than others? If I had to bet, and I don't have data that answers that exact question, I wish I did. If I had to bet, I would bet on some people have better tools than others, but certainly, you know, some people are more effective that like there's some nature nurture component of almost every skill. Uh, but I think tools, we tend to underappreciate the value of tools. And again, I'm going to point back to something I mentioned earlier, this, this data that Angela Duckworth told me about that I find so fascinating showing that within person differences across domains in effectiveness, exerting self-control or changing uh, are as dramatic as between person differences. And so that suggests that suggests to me that uh, that it's not it's not as if some people just have it all figured out and are change makers. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so let let me ask you this thing. This is so um so Nick um, had written in and he said, "What's the most inspiring or favorite story or case study that you discovered while writing this book?" Oh, that's such a good question. Um, it's uh. It's actually a case study and story that I discovered while working on my podcast that found its way into the book. And it's the story of Nancy Strahl. And Nancy is, um, she lives in Oregon. She is, um, she's amazing. And about 20 years ago, she had dropped her son and her husband at the airport. Her son was about 20 years old. Uh, they were going on a fishing trip to Alaska, and Nancy was looking forward to a, a quiet weekend at home alone. And she drove back, and she started to feel nauseous on this drive. And she thought, you know, maybe I have food poisoning. I'm not sure what's wrong. She went home. She lay down. And as the day went on, it got worse and worse, and she finally went to the emergency room. And the doctor told her that she was having a stroke. And when she woke up the next morning, she was paralyzed. And the doctors told her she was never going to walk again. And of course, like any of us in that horrible situation, Nancy wanted to know, you know, is there hope? Is there anything I can do? I, you know, she was, it was incredibly important to her as it would be to any of us to, to regain her independence. And they told her there was a, a small probability that she could regain that independence and the ability to walk if she went through an absolutely grueling rehabilitation program and that very few people complete this program, especially given where she lived, which was a rural area. She'd have access to inpatient care for a few weeks, and then she'd have to do the rest on her own at home. And so, you know, Nancy made a little bit of progress in the hospital. Then she had to go home and, and figure out how to do this, these paper exercises by herself, motivate herself. And no matter, you know, how motivated you are, it's just, it's brutal. And it's tough. And she was depressed and she wasn't making progress. And then she got on the internet and she started doing some research on programs that could work for someone who lived in a situation like she did where she was at home um, and needed to figure out a way to get through this on her own. And she found an experimental program from University of Massachusetts at Amherst that was using a new technique to gamify rehabilitation. And it was a program called Recovery Rapids, where you go through what a video game where you feel like you're you're kayaking down a whitewater river and you're picking up pieces of trash from the water and you're doing different moves and you can advance to different levels and Nancy enrolled in the program she started doing this every day she fell in love with it and she slowly regained the ability to walk and now she actually goes out and 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 kayaks and, uh, and rows every day. And she danced at her son's wedding. She takes care of her grandchildren. And she basically felt found a way to do this by finding a tactic to turn something that was just absolutely miserable that so few people could persist on into a source of fun. She found a way to make this rehab journey a joy by doing this whitewater rafting game that she loved that that became a big part of her life actually outside of the game. So that's one of my favorite stories of change. I think uh, it's an amazing story. She's an amazing person, like exchanging emails with her and talking to her. She's just a delight and a, it's such a wonderful, happy ending. But uh, I also think it illustrates this really important principle that we take for granted that Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago and her former student, Caitlin Woolley at Cornell, have proven, which is we think when we need to achieve a new goal, the best way to go about it is just what's the most effective way to get 
to the end of this path? What's the most effective exercise I can do, the most effective diet I can try, or the most effective study methods? And if we take that path, we rarely persist. But if instead people are coached to try to find the most fun workout you can do at the gym, like the Zumba class with your friends, or the most fun diet where you'll actually enjoy the food you're eating, even if it's, you know, takes a little longer to get to your end goal in terms of your, your physical appearance, uh, or find the most fun way to actually do your math homework, maybe with music in the background and some snacks that you like, those those are the best techniques because you persist longer. So that's that's the story I like best. That's super interesting. And that actually get like a clouded mind had just sent in who someone who sent in a question asking about gamification techniques like the those are, like Jane McGonigal wrote the book super better about sort of how to gamify. And what's interesting is that I, whenever it's people have brought up gamification to me, I've always kind of poo pooed the idea, right? Because it sounds like it sounds like it's taking something hard and that if you just put a fancy word against it, it magically gets easier, which doesn't make any sense to me. But what you just said does make sense, right? That that if I can that if I give myself sort of the the time and patience and tolerance to allow myself to actually have fun doing doing something new and and finding the change that, that it would be easier. I, so I, I'm training right now for the um for the San Francisco half marathon and I absolutely hate training for races. But so so me and a group of friends we send each other like uh, like whenever we run like an update like I ran three miles today with usually like some joke and the jokes I make I think are very very funny and nobody else does and the jokes <laughs> they sure send are hilarious. not funny but they think they're hilarious and so like and you're exactly right that like the like sometimes like I don't want to run but just thinking about like sending out that that text actually makes it so much easier and that is a kind of gamification right like I'm I I'm gamifying this experience in a way that that makes it gives me something to like about it exactly so, exactly okay so so, so let me ask this other question that Diane asked and then, and then I want to ask you about some of the chapters because because I was surprised by what you ended up writing about so Diane asked this question which I think is a really good one which is if somebody wants to change, right? If we want to diagnose bad habits, if we want to if we want to create new patterns in our lives, like is it better to to just sort of figure this out on our own or work with a professional? You know, should we go to a therapist? Should we have a coach? Like like if I want to change, what what do I need to do besides read this book to 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 put me in the best place to make that that more likely that it's going to be successful? I love that question. I think if one of the challenges is a lack of confidence or a lack of um, sort of a, a, a lack of connect dis, or a disconnect between your long-term goals and what your impulse tells you to do, then getting outsiders involved can be really valuable, but it's not necessarily valuable for every challenge you'd have. So let me talk a little bit about how getting a coach or uh or friend involved can help. Um, one way is that it can build your confidence. So if you have peers who you involve in your journey and they're peers who've had similar goals and have had success, you can see them, begin to see them as role models. They can increase your confidence in what you can achieve and, and you can actually emulate some of their strategies so you can sort of get tips and tricks that you pick up from another person. There's this wonderful study that was led by Scott Carell, who's a UCSD economist, showing that if you're randomly assigned to a college dorm where your roommate is a high achiever, it improves your own grades. So you can see how having somebody around who um, who you can emulate and who sort of rubs off on you, right? Like we, we all learned this when when our parents told us, like, hang out with the good, the good students, like, and they were encouraging us. They were right. So- we can, but we can use that knowledge strategically to choose some of the people who are supporters on this journey. If you have a specific goal, finding somebody who also has that goal and maybe is a little bit ahead of you, who you can hang around and emulate and get tips from, that can be helpful. And then the other way is accountability, which is a form of commitment device, right? We talked about cash penalties for failure, but another kind of penalty for failure is the shame you feel if there's somebody who's holding you accountable. And so a coach or a friend whose opinion you value can serve in that kind of role. You mentioned having a group of people in your marathon group, and it reminded me of a study that I got to do with, that was led by Rachel Gershon of, of UCSD, where we paid people either a dollar for every gym visit they made, 
or a dollar every time they visited the gym with a friend. So uh, everybody signs up with a friend and they either get these independent cash incentives or these these incentives that are linked and the incentives that are linked an economy, a standard economist would be like that. That's worse. Cause it's harder to get your dollar. You have to right, jump yeah. through for more hoops for it. You have to coordinate with someone, but we found that those people who had that gym buddy exercise 36% more during the month of our program. And when we asked them, you know, why, what was going on? One thing actually they said was it was fun. So that was what you pointed out. But the other thing they said is they felt accountable. You know, if I don't go to the gym now, my friend is left stranded and they're not going to get their dollar. And that's really crummy. So that's really interesting. So accountability is a value that that people can provide as well. So, that's so th- those super are the two values of other people. I'd say. That makes a ton. Of, I'm actually going to recommend to this group that we that we do something similar. Um, that they have to pay me if they don't go running. Um, <laughs> and, and you'll get rich fast. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. And that actually gets into this other question that I wanted to ask you about, which is, so, okay. So there's this guy, I've been uh, a trainer that I've been working with, right. In, on, on zoom and in real life. And like me and my friends, I, we all love this guy. His name's Gabrielle. He lives in Brooklyn. If you're looking for a great trainer, his name is Gabrielle. He, uh, and like, the thing is, the reason we love him is because he is so, He's so like warm and welcoming. Like, you know, like if I, he just, he makes you feel good every single time I exercise with him. I feel like I'm doing something right and I'm a champion. And it's so nice to have that encouragement. But at the same time, there is part of my brain. I've had this conversation with friends where we're like, God, I kind of wish he pushed me a little bit harder. Like if Gabrielle told me like, I'm a screw up because I promised him I was going to stretch three times a week and I didn't that like maybe it would push me to actually do this more. And and I, I there's another guy I work with to, to help me surfing who like, like tells me all the wrong things I do all the time. And like part of me knows that I want that, but I find myself avoiding him all the time. And I never, I never make new appointments with him. So what is that balance? Like, like how much positive reinforcement and how much negative reinforcement should we have to, to change, to have optimal change? I love that. Uh, it's important to have people who believe in you when you lack confidence. So if the challenge that you're facing when it comes to surfing or exercising is, I just don't believe that I can do this, then having the kind of coach who just props you up and boosts you is really, really valuable. And having somebody who's like, you know, you're not, you're not achieving enough and is giving you a hard time may be exactly the wrong thing. But if on the other hand, it's not a confidence issue, but it's an issue where, you know, you're, you have this long-term goal, but it's not instantly gratifying. And so you can't drag yourself to do the thing that's good for you. Then you may need the kick in the butt. That's so they're solving different problems, right? One is changing when, when the person is sort of giving you a hard time, they're changing the incentives, the structure of the choice, the way a commitment device might, when someone is propping you up, they're changing your confidence. And so it depends which of these barriers you feel is a bigger barrier for you in this journey to change. What kind of coach is going to be, I think the most appropriate and most useful. That's really interesting. Right. So it takes me thinking about it and figuring out where I am in my head. Like, do I need confidence or do I need accountability? Um, so, so, and that actually sort of relates a little bit to this question that just came in from Alex, which is, Alex says, I've used the last year to make some healthy habit and lifestyle changes. But when I talk to friends and other people, I get these sarcastic responses like, well, that's really great for you, right? <laughs> like, like, how should Alex think about that, right? I mean, first of all, he should tell his friends to quit being jerks. But, but then, like, <laughs> like, I mean, our friend, like, it's natural, right? That, like... When we don't want to be the person who's like, you know, it's fantastic. I read this book, How to Change, and now I've lost 30 pounds and I like look amazing. And, you know, I, I've, I get all my work done all the time. Like, how do we, it's, it is natural for other people to be like, you know, good on you, jerko. Like, go, go be perfect in the corner. How do we think about that? Because it's, it's an inevitable part of life that there are other people who, won't support our change, sometimes with the best of intentions, just because it's just fun to kind of be cynical. I think that this relates to the importance of of thinking about who you surround yourself with on the journey to change and how the people you surround yourself with, what are the right ways that they uh, they can be involved. So let me tell you about some research that I think is really relevant to this on the power of uh, of having 
social support that sort of flips things in, in a different direction? I think this will answer the question in a roundabout way. So one of my favorite projects was led by Lauren Eskris Winkler. She's going to be a professor at the Kellogg School at Northwestern starting in July. And she had this really interesting insight about the way we normally interact with other people when, when they're trying to change, which is if somebody else is struggling, we normally give them advice. And that can be actually really discouraging. And she had the insight that maybe it would actually be helpful if someone is struggling, if we um, instead ask them for advice and ask them if they could serve as a mentor or a coach to someone else. And by doing that, we might boost their self-confidence, help them actually introspect about what would work for them and put them on in this position of um, giving advice so that they'd feel hypocritical if they didn't actually pursue their own advice. So we've done some random, random assignment trials showing that this helps. We did one study with uh, kids in high school and Lauren has done studies with other folks who are trying to achieve goals around health and wellness. Um, and being put in the position of giving advice increases students' own grades, for instance. Okay. So how does this relate to the challenge of, you know, having friends who aren't supporting Wait, you? Let me just make sure I'm getting that right. So so if, if there's a student who's like struggling at, in, in school, like he's struggling studying or I, instead of telling, like helping, helping that student figure out how, like, instead of telling him, like, here's some advice on how to do better, I should go and I should say, Hey, will you give Jim advice on how to study? Like, that's going to help. That, that is a finding, which is not to say, by the way, if the kid like doesn't understand calculus, they don't need a calculus teacher. Right, so this right, is specifically right. about study skills. And this particular finding looked at kids who uh, it, it seemed like they got a boost around realizing that they could study more effectively by giving advice to other kids more generically about, you know, where are good places to find quiet? What are some, what are some tips for getting your work done on time? So it was that kind of advice. So it doesn't substitute for instruction in the material, but yes, it, that's exactly the finding that having someone turn and give advice to someone else, the person giving advice benefits. That's it. And by that same token, like if I'm trying to lose weight, should I turn to, you know, one of my friends where and, and a skinny friend and my instinct usually would be to say like, how are you so skinny? What should I do differently? But instead, should I say like, look, like, let me tell you how, how I think you should stay skinny and give them advice. I don't, I don't know about the skinny friend staying skinny <laughs> specifically, but, um, but one of the prescriptions that I have realized I'm using in my own life and has added huge value for me. And this is, how it relates to Alex's original question is that uh, it can be really valuable, I think, to form advice clubs. So find groups of people who have similar goals to you and then take turns, both extracting knowledge and insight from them. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. You know, you're trying to, you've worked on it too. Have you figured it out? Can I copy and paste you? Which by the way, is a strategy we should use more in life, just emulating people who are, who've already figured things out. Uh, and then Second, they're going to come to us when they have a challenge. And when we get the opportunity to introspect, we're going to dredge up insights we might not otherwise have dredged up that are likely to work for us because they're personalized. They come from our own life and our own experience. And we're going to want to walk the talk later. And so when we face a similar challenge, we'll want to follow through by doing the same thing. So, so my advice to Alex about the group of friends who... Uh, are not providing support is, can you think about a different group, a group of people who have similar goals, who you could actually specifically agree you want to talk with about whatever those healthy goals are and maintaining them, and then give each other advice when you're looking for it. So they'll like hearing when you have successes, because they'll feel like a part of that, since their successes, your successes will reflect their advice working well. And you'll also benefit by giving them coaching when they need help. So it's this magical win-win. And it's something I've done in my career and didn't even realize that all the ways I was benefiting from. And it's been magical having a group of actually, in my case, other women who are also professors, also have similar goals about both doing original research, communicating with the public, having balanced, happy lives. And we we actually, we have a, a special tagline. We'll email each other when we have a challenge that we're facing. We call it the no club, actually. 
it's a long story, try to help help ourselves, you know, not overcommit. But uh, it's become so much more. And it's not only been amazing, because I get insights from other people about, oh, that's such a good idea, I should do that. Thank you for helping me solve this problem. But I get a cheering squad, because they're invested in my success. Um, I'm part of a cheering squad because I'm invested in their success, which is, by the way, something we all love and value, that kind of social network. And when I give advice, I'm actually gaining insight that I use. That's super interesting. So that actually gets to to to, to another question that Diane asked, which is, OK, so so if I want to change, if somebody wants to change and sort of know I should give them advice, I should ask them to give me advice or give someone else advice. If I'm trying to change I should counterintuitively give advice to other people, but ask and, and be open to their advice, try and get into this club where we're giving each other advice. But okay, so, but what if you see someone who you believe needs to make a change and they might not recognize that quite as much? Like, like how, do I, how do I influence them? Is it better just to sort of take a step back and say like, okay, I'm gonna let this person hit rock bottom so that they, they realize they have to change? Or, or can I can I help them? Can I step in and intervene and help them find the the tools or the strengths to change, particularly if I, if I, if I suspect they want to? Yeah, there's lots of ways that we can be helpful. And I think a lot of the strategies that can be used to help yourself can also be used to nudge change in others. Again, trying to figure out what is the barrier and that is the first step. And then you can use different tools to try to help. So if the barrier is self-confidence, as we talked about, you know, one thing you can do is ask them, you know, what do you think? Put them in the position. If I have a student who's struggling, I can put them in the position of advisor to another student, uh, right? And that's one way I can actually help them change. So you could ask this person, this hypothetical person who's struggling to change and you think they might want to change to give some coaching or support to someone else who you think has a similar goal. Uh, you can also use um, social norms. So introduce them to other people who are succeeding, convey, hey, this is what most people seem to be doing that's working. Um, directly, you know, sort of confronting people can be challenging, but a lot of the tools of persuading people to change are a little bit subtler and more artful. And I will also recommend another wonderful book that's really focused on persuasion, which is um, Bob Cialdini's amazing book, uh, influence the psychology of persuasion, which I think it's a great book if your goal is to change someone's attitudes or decisions, which is a little different than behavior change. But if you feel like they haven't bought in yet, and the first step is I need to convince them to change, that can be really valuable. Whereas uh, a lot of the tools in this book are more about helping helping people who who want that objective right. find their way to it. So, so we have about seven minutes left. So, so if, if anyone who's watching, if you do have any questions, feel free to put them into the, um, into the, the chat box or the text box on, on um, YouTube and we'll, and we'll definitely get to them um, in our last couple of minutes. Before, before we do, there are two other things that I wanted to, to ask you about. The first is that, you know, I was surprised that you had a chapter called Confidence, Right. And, and yet it makes a lot of sense to me because in addition to having the confidence that I can change, it does seem that for a lot of people, you know, I get emails all the time asking about how do people deal with imposter syndrome? How do they deal with a, a feeling that even if they have changed or they have some accomplishment, that it's going to stick, that they can rely on it, that they that they should believe in themselves. And, and I don't usually think of confidence as something that that we we have a change plan around. But tell me a little bit, like, why Why did you include that in there? Why did you feel like that was so important? Honestly, I think one of the reasons that it became clear to me that should be in the book is that some of the research I've done in my career has been looking at uh, women and minorities in organizations where they're underrepresented and what are the things that can help those groups succeed at a higher rate. And interestingly, although we, we need huge structural change to support underrepresented groups achieving more those groups also tend to, uh, because of the messages they've been sent throughout their lives, because of the stereotypes they've been subjected to, not always believe that they can achieve as much as their peers. And that is a barrier. It's a barrier that that keeps people who have tremendous potential from reaching their full potential. And there's some really wonderful research that's been done on by Carol Dweck on the power of uh, of a growth mindset, recognizing that 
in failure is an opportunity to grow and that we're not fixed and that intelligence isn't fixed and that you can improve with effort. And, and that seems to have outsized effects for improving outcomes for uh, women and minorities and members of underrepresented groups. So to me, that became, it became an important chapter to include because of, frankly, the, the social uh, benefits, I think, of, of recognizing how can we shift decisions for people in these populations, for people who have not consistently been given messages and opportunities that they can achieve. Uh, and, and that belief is so important there. Absolutely. And, and so, and, and what should we do, whether it's, whether, whether it's something that we're suffering from, or whether it's something that we want to help someone else who we feel like is, is, is operating without the confidence that they ought to have. Like, what do we do to help build that confidence? Because you can't, you can't fake confidence, right? No, absolutely. Um, there's a few things. One of the things I, I spend a while on in that chapter actually is the power of advice giving, putting people on a pedestal, making them into mentors to others, and that how much that can bring to the table. But I do also think this work on growth mindset is super important and sending the message consistently that there's not that, that there aren't fixed traits and that failures are part of a path and a journey and that you can learn and grow and improve. Uh, and and giving people the message that they have what it takes as consistently as possible. If you see one of the barriers is, is this lack of self-confidence can be really important. So I, I tell a story that I love in that chapter um, about a, a math graduate student who walked into a class a little bit late. His name is George Danzig. He's famous at this point, uh, but he was a graduate student and he walked in late and there were a couple problems on the board that he assumed were homework and he jotted them down and they seemed like a little bit harder than the usual problems. So he worked on them for a couple days and he turned in the answers late, but he got them done. He was a little sheepish about being late with them. And later his professor came and tracked him down and said, actually, those were unsolvable problems that I'd put on the board. And just because he had thought they were homework and there was a solution, he was able to come up with a solution. And I think that does a really nice job. It's actually a story that I originally heard from Carol Dweck, who's the, the sort of giant in thinking about the research on growth mindset and how powerful it is. It illustrates that what we believe really matters to the outcomes we achieve. And there's lots of research. If, if you've heard of the placebo effect, that's, that's exactly this effect where you believe a sugar pill is going to cure your headache or whatever, you know, whatever you're suffering from. And, and placebos have this remarkable success rate uh, because it's so powerful to expect something. It changes, changes the way we pursue it, right? It's not, it's not just physiological. There are physiological effects literally, but it changes the way you do something. Uh, if you believe, for instance, and this is a really interesting study, you believe that the work you do as a housekeeper at a hotel is good for you because you're told it meets the CDC's recommendations for daily exercise, you actually get more benefits and you lose more weight doing that job. And it, it's not, I don't think it's magic. It's not my, it's not my study, but I, I don't think it's magic. I think what's happening there is you code it differently. And I do this in my, in my townhouse. Somebody pointed out to me every time I go up and down the stairs is passive exercise. And so I realized, oh, like I'll volunteer when we're on a roof deck having dinner, I'll run down and get the ketchup or let me do an extra load of laundry because I get to take the stairs. So once you think about something differently, you pursue it differently. I think that's super interesting and super important. You know, like this idea that reward salience, that believing something as a reward actually makes it into a reward and that you can reframe what are, what are otherwise unpleasant behaviors, not just because you get to listen to your audiobook while you're running, but because simply, simply saying like, actually, this is a reward that I'm giving myself makes it in more rewarding, makes it more enjoyable. I think that's enormously powerful because it, because it, because it does suggest that and to, to Carol Dweck's work that so much of the world around us is what we choose to see in the world around us, or how we choose to to represent it. You know, there's this quote that I always tell my kids from Abraham Lincoln, which they hate in Billingham, which is that that you, you, you're you're as happy as you choose to be, right? And it's clearly not a hundred percent true, right? They, sometimes life serves you things that make you unhappy, even if you want it to be otherwise. Sometimes you're suffering from depression. Sometimes you live, as you pointed out, for for disadvantaged communities. You live in a system. That, that grinds you down or treats you unfairly. And, and that is not to diminish the impacts of those or the fact that we should fight those systems or try and make the world a better place, but also to point out that, or to note that 
that one of the things that we can do is just try and reframe this stuff in our own head. And that that's not going to solve every problem, but it's at least going to get us a little bit closer to, to hopefully making those solutions easier to find. Um, okay, so let me ask one last question before before unfortunately we have to we have to end the conversation, which is so so you've been studying this for years now. You've written an entire book. Let me ask you when you were writing this, or or like how has your life changed? What have you like besides besides listening to to um to your your Harry Potter while you're exercising now? Like, have you found that the act of writing this book showed you new ways to change yourself? I think one of my favorite insights that I use over and over and over again from this book is the copy and paste insight, which is that uh, if I can find other people who figured this out already and then emulate them as closely as possible, that takes you so far. And so this is something that I've studied with Angela Duckworth. And actually, it's really because so she's a collaborator and friend and a super high achiever and I realized I was getting, when we started working together regularly, I was getting all these ideas for ways I could improve my life if I just did it like Angela. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, you schedule meetings whenever you're walking across campus. You use that 15 minutes to actually have a call with someone you need to have a call with. And those 15 minutes you have back later in the day. Oh my gosh, I should do that. You know, thing after thing that I was noting, wow, I should do this. So uh, we ended up doing research showing that this is effective and that you can coach people to do a better job of copying and pasting the clever people in their lives. So I would say that's probably the hack that I use the most that has improved my productivity and happiness the most is just treating my so and and I I hope I don't do it in an annoying way. I actually think my friends as far as I can tell seem to sort of like it because it's flat right imitation is the highest form of flattery, but recognizing that there's insight and opportunity in every person you meet to figure out What's the thing they're doing better than I am and that I can learn from and then use in my own life until you sort of become, you know, more and more effective and, and happier. So that's yeah. a big one for me. That makes a ton of sense. I've been actually taking notes as you've been talking, like, like writing. I'm, I'm going to go tell my running group all of these ideas. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> like, you have to tell me how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, data if you, point if you, of one, but still, if you get I'll like a hundred bucks in the mail, it's because it's because me and my running group all showed up to run at the same time. <laughs> Um, and if the American Nazi party gets a hundred dollars, it's because we didn't. So oh, no. <laughs> joking, I'm not going to give any money to the Nazis. I promise. No matter how much I don't run, I will not give. I don't even know if the American Nazi party exists. If it's a thing. <laughs> Anyways. <what> <laughs> so, well, well, listen, thank you so much, Katie. This has been so fascinating and so fantastic. And, and for everyone who's watching, you should absolutely go get Katie's new book, which is called again, how to change the science of getting getting from where you are to where you want to be. It's available on any book selling platform in any bookstore. There's the cover. Um, you should absolutely go get a copy. And, and I want to thank all of you, the audience for tuning in and for submitting your questions and to, for participating. And we in the Commonwealth Club, we would love to hear about your change. So please reach out to us as you take these ideas and you make them real. You can email me at Charles Duhigg uh, or Charles at CharlesDuhigg.com. Katie, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? kmilkman at wharton.upenn.edu. Send me an email. We would love to hear how you change and how these ideas infiltrate your life and what you make of them. And, and we would also love for you to come and watch more programs and support the Commonwealth Club. Um, you know, the Commonwealth Club is spending a lot of time and energy trying to create this virtual programming because, of course, we're in the middle of this pandemic. But, but as a result, they have wonderful, wonderful programs at commonwealthclub.org slash online. So if you're looking for more ideas, if you're looking for more videos to watch, if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, absolutely go to commonwealthclub.org slash online. And to the Commonwealth Club, thank you so much for having us. It's such an enormous um, treasure for, for San Francisco and California and the entire nation to have the Commonwealth Club out there providing a space for conversations like this. And thank you to everyone. My name is Charles Duhigg. Thanks for coming. And um, we want to hear all about your change. Good luck. Thank you, Charles. You've been listening to the Commonwealth